Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 359. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 359 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated producer, engineer, songwriter, and musician, Will Yip. Will is the owner of Studio 4 Recording in Pennsylvania, and he's also the owner of Memory Music, an independent record label launched in June of 2015. And he's worked with artists such as Lauren Hill, Panic at the Disco, Blacklisted, and many, many others. We have to thank our friend Josh Eastock for making the connection between Will and I, and looking forward to having you hear that interview. Will Yip, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about complacency. Complacency can take shape in a number of ways, and it can affect all of us, no matter where we're at in our journey. So let's take someone who's got a steady stream of clients, you know, great scenario. And you you might think, well, hey, steady stream of clients, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing's wrong with that. And of course the cliche is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Well, that may be true, but what if it could be better? What if you've settled into a groove where you've accepted what it is you do, how you do it, and maybe your clients have just said, well, that's just how it is, so we just do it that way. What if it could be better for you or your clients? Just because you've got a steady stream of clients does not mean that you should stop reevaluating how you do things. Because what can happen is over time, you keep doing the same shit day in, day out, clients just accept how it is. And then somebody new comes along and introduces a slightly different approach that attracts them. And then they think, you know what? I think we're gonna take a break from you. And then they, they go to the person down the street or across town or across the country. I would encourage you, even if you do have a steady stream of clients, to always be reevaluating and even ask your clients, hey, do you like how this works? You know, is there a particular aspect of anything that we do, whether it's the, the process of making records or the process of making movies or games? And make sure that your client is happy with the results. And then obviously ask yourself, are you happy with the results? Are you happy with the process? Is there something that could be done better? I mean, even down to the simplest thing, right? So let's take the other scenario. Let's say you just don't have enough clients and maybe you've settled into, well, that's just how it is. You've taken on maybe a couple uh, part-time jobs just so you could do audio. Well, what if that could be better? What if you just said, well, that's just how it is and I'm not gonna you know, try to improve anything because you choose to accept that that's how it is. You become complacent in your position. But what if there's something more out there? What if what if there's a few things that you could change where you could quit one of those other gigs and be doing more of the thing you love? What if? So it's very easy to just settle. It's very easy to just say, well, as I as I keep repeating here, that's how it is. That's how we've always done it, right? That's probably one of the 
number one complaints in life that I have. When I hear people say, well, that's how we've always done it. It's like, well, really? <laughs> Come on. Can it be improved? Can it be uh, fine-tuned to where it's just even better than it was? And even when you get to that point, you know, can it be better? I know that there's a point of diminishing returns. And, you know, at some point you've just got to, you've got to do the best you can. And there, there will be some limitations, but really, if we all think about how much better can we do, can I do better for me? Can I do better for my clients? Can I do better for my family? And, and this can, of course, stretch to all aspects of our life. How can we do better? Is there something else out there? Is there another approach? Is there another way to do all of this? And what do I need to do to achieve that? And you remember, I'm a big fan of atomic habits. So if you start to do something in the same way and just accept that that's how it is, it becomes a habit. And some habits are hard to break. So if you can make a new habit that is a better version of you and a better version of, of your business for your clients, all the better, I say. When is it enough? And that's up to you, as you know. If you get into a groove that you think is the way to go, I mean, hey, far be it for me to question it, but that's also up to you. You have to question it yourself. And I'm gonna be that kind of, you know, devil's advocate that says, hmm, I don't know, might be better, could be better. Hopefully that this little rant will stick in your head. So next time you think, okay, that's good enough. Maybe you'll think twice about that and hopefully, hopefully I'll get to you in some way there in the best possible way. Not trying to, not trying to be a pest, but I just, I think at the end of the day, what I'd love to see for all of us is, is that things improve, things continue to improve and you do better with your clients, you do better with your families, your significant others, your pets, whatever. And in the long run, we think in a bigger picture. Think about the fact that everything you work on, you want it to have impact. You do not want it to just be mediocre. That means finding really great clients to work with. And that's a whole nother rant in itself. But whatever you're doing, whatever discipline of audio you're in, don't just do the best you can and settle. Make sure that you are evaluating it from all angles, you know, while not interrupting the groove of working with the client. But, you know, when you finish with a project, Ask yourself, okay, that was great. What could have gone better? Do a little bit of an evaluation, a debriefing, if you will, with yourself of what you could have done better, how it could go better for everyone involved, and try to apply that to the next session, the next film, game, record, single, whatever it is, forensic audio, you know. You know what I'm talking about this. I'm always referring to all of you out there in all the different disciplines of audio. So that's it. Don't settle. Don't become complacent, no matter how good it's getting or how good it is, because you can always do a little better. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Will Yip here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Will, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, man. I'm a big fan of what you do, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. Yeah, we have to thank our mutual friend, Josh Eastock. He's the best. We started hanging out a bunch, and he really kind of inspired me to connect with more so the audio community, less so of just the songwriting side, less of just like the artist side, you know? Ah. So yeah, I'm very grateful for him because he's connected a lot of dots for me. He used to be my Sweetwater sales rep. Yep. Great guy and glad to see that he's out in the world doing other stuff. He's killing it. He's killing it. So we should start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and how did your upbringing revolve around music and what influence did that have on you? I grew up in Philly, in North Philly and... My parents were immigrants from China, and they came over here with nothing but the clothes on their back. And their family kind of helped them, support them while they're over here. And so we had a pretty strict upbringing uh, in our household of just focusing and focusing on the future and always doing good work. When I got into music, I got into music because my brother was always getting me really cool records from Dr. Dre records and Nirvana records. Those are the first records I remember getting. You're listening and being like, there was a part of me that fell in love with music. I just knew I loved music. I became obsessed with listening to music. And my parents, not that they weren't supportive, but 
to them, they just saw a bunch of hobbies as distractions for schoolwork, for keeping focused on my future. You know, what was my future? I didn't know, but they thought I was going to have like a really comfortable job because that's the way it went for me. They came over here and they waited tables and worked in sweatshops, literally a sweatshop and delivering Chinese food and waiting tables. And so they didn't want that for me. They wanted me to have a college education and do well and have a comfortable life for my family, my future family. And so when I became passionate about music, they're very supportive people, but I definitely saw a hesitancy on like them investing in it because I was around so much music in school, you know, being in Philadelphia, every kid played in a band and every kid raps or they were making beats on Fruity Loops or whatever, or the early Fruity Loops and stuff. So the people that were passionate about music were definitely intermingling. And there was always small communities in my public schooling that I became obsessed with wanting to play drums. I just fell in love with the drums for some reason. I really think it was because I took up the saxophone when I was in fourth grade and jazz band, the drummer was like the coolest person. He was so cool. We would have a drum solo at the concerts. And I was like, man, man, maybe one day I can play drums. This is when I was like eight, nine years old. And when I was 12, I bought my first pair of drumsticks and I would just hit things. I would just hit pillows at home and I would just hit things. My parents didn't see that as something that I would be doing or they really wanted me to do. Because again, they just wanted me to focus on my schoolwork. They wanted me to focus on other things that were more kind of valuable to my future. But one thing that they also taught me was being passionate about what I was passionate about. And at that point, I was very passionate about music. And I don't think anything in the world could have stopped me from playing music. So after a lot of saving up and with their help, you know, again, they are supportive. They helped me buy my first drum set and it ruined it ruined our entire neighborhood. <laughs> Every neighborhood <laughs> complained about me banging drums poorly. And I just fell in love with it, man. And all I would do was play music and have a band and write songs with my friends. And I just fell in love with it. So that was like the very beginning phase of, of my musical life was in a household that didn't really want me to do it. I just it couldn't stop me because I just loved it. It was more than an itch. It was like all I can think about. Was there any guilt on your part from like feeling bad about wanting to do that, you know, knowing that where your parents came from and the journey they had taken, did you encounter any guilt? I did not feel guilt. I think anyone that even knows me now, you know, I was just working with my friends in Turnover and the singer knows really well. And I was bringing up all these business venture ideas. I'm like, dude, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna work on this. He's like, yo, you're crazy. This is what makes you you. You have so many ideas but you're passionate about them all. And to me, when I have the idea, I don't think I can fail. I think if I believe in something, I'm going to throw in 150% in and I'm going to do it. So even when I was 12 years old or 11 years old, when I picked up the drums and when I fell in love with it, I thought I was going to be a professional drummer or I thought I was going to work in music. I was so passionate. I was like, this is all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So not that I felt guilt, but I felt pressure. You know, I felt pressure that, yeah, you might not like this, but I'm going to prove to you that not only am I going to sustain a career, it's going to be a very good career because I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the best at what I do. And uh, I didn't become the best drummer, <laughs> but I did get to have a little career in music. So, huh. you know, it wasn't guilt. 
when I work with Lauren Hill, Ms. Lauren Hill, she noticed that I feed off stress and I feed off pressure. And that's how I felt. I just felt like a chip on my shoulder that, all right, no one believes I can do this. Not even my parents let me prove them wrong. But at the same time, they supported me the entire way. They were just fearful. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, like any first generation or immigrant family are, they just want the best for their children. What is punk music and hip hop going to do for them? But I was going to prove them wrong. That was my goal. One other thing, just to kind of dig deeper into your relationship with your parents. Do you think that your drive comes from watching and knowing what they went through to get one, 100%. I still tell them and thank them every day. They're the two most hardworking people I know. Again, they were in their late 20s and in early 30s when they had us here, when me and my brother were born here. And even as very young children, I knew they were working their asses off. My mom, again, was working in a sweatshop for 14 hours a day with tag us along. I would see it. I would see it with my own eyes. And my dad was working in shitty Chinese restaurants. I would see the pain and and not in the pain, just the tiredness in their eyes. And they were just such hardworking people. And that definitely stuck with me up until now. I was hanging out with my mom the other day and she's like, yo, you got to stop working so much. You got to stop working so hard. Like I was so tired after a session and we had dinner. I'm like, mom, I got this from you. You know, you did this to me. And she got chuckled out of it. But it's true. Without them, without seeing their work ethic, I wouldn't have mine. I always tell people, I know I'm not the most talented person in the world. I know I don't have the best engineering chops. I know I'm not the best drummer. I'm not the best songwriter, but I know I'll outwork anybody in the room, no matter who's in the room. That's just what I do. And we're going to get the best product we possibly can because I was born to work. That's all I knew. I don't take days off. I don't take hours off. I think any band that works with me would tell you that. And that came from my parents and I'm forever grateful for that. What? came first professionally for you work as a musician or work as an audio professional? I think I was trying to do both. And then the audio side just fell into my lap from the second I was drumming when I was 11 or 12 and started getting my bands together. Our first middle school bands, we wanted to make records. We wanted to make recordings. I wanted to document our songs. And I remember saving up Every penny we had, me and my buddy, we found a studio uh, on like the Yellow Pages that was charging $20 an hour for some basement studio called Ground Control at that point. And me and him, we saved up $100 that to a 12-year-old, $100 might as well be $5,000 or might as well be $10,000. It was so much money that we both kind of just saved up all of our allowances and we sold things. It was crazy. And we went in. And we recorded three songs. And that was my first studio experience when I was, at that point, I was 13. And I fell in love with the studio. I fell in love with the process. And when I walked in, I was like, this is the coolest place in the world. Seeing a control room for the first time, seeing this tiny, tiny live room. But I loved it. I loved it. I loved the aspect of building a song. I love the aspect of building music and the big picture. At that point, I was so hyper-focused on my drumming and and drum parts and to see someone else construct parts, it blew my mind. And I knew that I wanted to do that. I thought I I was still going to be a drummer, but I wanted to also do that. I was like, that could be a cool path too. Even when I was 13 and 14 years old, maybe that's another way I can make a living is doing this. And I fell in love with it, man. And from that studio session on, I remember talking to the engineer and I said, if you ever need help, 
I just want to hang out. I'll grab coffee. I'll clean the toilets, whatever. And about a year, a year or two later, I was still 14. He invited me to start working at his new studio because he needed a hand to help out the rehearsal rooms, like just to clean up the rehearsal rooms. And he paid me $5 an hour. I took, and that was the coolest job. I felt like the coolest 14 year old in the world at that point. And I would meet so many cool punk bands and all these cool hardcore bands running the rehearsal rooms. And he allowed me to be his apprentice on the side for the recording side too. So that's when I just fell more in love with the actual technical aspect of it. And I never left the studio since. Audio is the only job I ever had from then on. Like I never did anything else. You can never drag me out of the studio. If you look at it like a ladder or a set of stairs, like taking forward steps, what do you think are the, the points in time where you did take forward steps to advance your career? Oh man, that's, that's a great question. I, I can see it very clearly. That first studio introduction was definitely the first main step in terms of like what I thought was a cornerstone on my career. Mm -hmm. And again, meeting bands while rehearsing, I love networking. I think I'm built to help network as a part of a community. And I always love helping artists. So even then, I just started building when I was 14, 15, and 16. I was working on adding assets to my mom's basement studio in my parents' house. And I would keep adding all things. I remember buying my first M-Audio sound card, my first M-Audio interface, and saving up enough for 57s and a Beta 52. And I would want to bring bands in to record, but I didn't feel right charging anyone because I, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. So I would offer bands that were coming into the studio to rehearse a free place to demo before they recorded in the room, before they recorded it, because they were all like demo on a cassette boombox. So I'll never forget this band called Blacklisted. At that point, it was a very hot punk band in Philadelphia. They were recording their demos on a little cassette. And I was like, yo, guys, I love your band. Would you want to record your demos in my mom's basement for free? I was recording our friends and myself whenever I could. But I was like, I would love to do it for free. It'll be better than your cassette. It won't be that good. <laughs> It'll be better than your cassette. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. So next week they came over, we did it, and it was the best sounding thing I've ever done. And from that point, I knew it was in the artist. I knew it was about grabbing the right performance. I knew it was in the takes because these guys actually made my basement sound awesome. They, they sounded like a great band. So that was the first of it because they carried me through the beginning stages of my audio career. You know, I'll probably skip a few steps, but I kept doing their demos for their next few albums. And before I know it, when I finally got to Studio 4, where I'm at now, that was my first real LP that I did was the fourth record. And because of that record, I got so many other punk records and that became what I was known for. So that when asking them to do demos, that was a big pillar for me. But there's a few steps along the way in the studio side that really, really shaped who I was. I'm a very goal-oriented person. I like waking up and knowing I have this goal. And I love every day thinking about what I'm doing next month or building towards something. And growing up in Philly, there's so many records, Fuji's records, Boys and Men records, Cypress Hill records, Criss Cross records growing up. I would look through the booklet and see recorded at Studio 4 in Philadelphia or recorded at Studio 4 in Contra Hawking when it moved. And I'm like, Yo, that's here. To me, when I was a kid, I thought everything was made in this fantasy land. I thought everything was made in LA or whatever. <laughs> like this place that doesn't exist to me. Right. How could these important records be made in my hometown? I love Philly. Where are they? Where are these celebrities at? Where are these bands at? So when the internet got a little more 
accessible, I will always look up these studios and look up Studio 4. And it was like a dream studio. I saw pictures. I'm like, whoa, that's like millionaires record there. You know, that's crazy, you know? <laughs> and so that was a goal. You know, I put that in the back of my mind, like maybe one day if the cards fall right and I work hard enough, I'll get there. Yeah. So I always had that goal. And everything I did in terms of the studio life in Philly was getting to that goal. And I found there was another studio called Indre in South Philly. They were doing like really popular radio sets, like live sessions and did like a Jimmy World EP and like some like Motley Crue stuff, like a rock studio. And I saw they had a lot of interns on the internet. So I emailed them. I was about 17, 18 at this point. I was a freshman in college. And I said, yo, I want to intern for free. Whatever you want, I'll work for you free for as long as you want. I'll drop everything to intern for you. And the studio manager, her name was Jen. I'll never forget because she emailed me back and just said, I'm sorry, we're full. And I was crushed. Mm. I was like, that was my next step. I wanted to take a next step into a bigger studio. I didn't know how to get in touch with Studio 4, but this seemed accessible. I knew where the studio was. And, you know, I was bummed. And that night I was like, no. No, I'm getting in that studio. I'm getting into that studio. So I reached back out and I said, can I book a mastering session? Because it didn't mix some mastering work. I just needed to get in that studio. Talk about getting your foot in the door. I'm just going to pay to get my foot in the door. And she was like, you have a budget? I was like, yeah, I need to master five songs. I don't know, everything in my bank account. I had $900 in my bank account. And I was like, I have $900. Can that get me anything? She's like, oh, funny thing. To master five songs, it costs exactly... which I'm sure it did it, but I was a stupid little college kid. So I was the only one getting the door to pay in. I went in and we loaded up these mixes that I did in my mom's basement. And the engineer, Mike Rochelle, turns to me and goes, where the hell did you track this? I'm like, dude, in my mom's basement, the size of a box, it was like a 10 by 10 box. And he's like, dude, it sounds better than most stuff we do in our Avery, which was huge. And from then on, I knew I had them. I was like, dude, that gets me so stoked. If I can help you out in any way, if you need an intern, an assistant, I just want to be here. I just want to help you out. He's like, funny thing is our assistant dropped for the Saturday. We have a live recording gig. I would love to have you. You seem like you got chops. So that Saturday, I rolled up to a big venue here. And it was for a band called The Fray. And at that point, I didn't know who the hell they were. It was like, this was like 05, 06. It was 06. And they sound checked with How to Save a Life. I'm like, this band's going to be the biggest band in the world. I didn't know they were already becoming a massive band. And then the next time they came around, they were literally the biggest band in the world. So that was my first credit of doing a Frey live recording. And I started working on Indre. And uh, that was such an important pillar because the following semester, I took Phil Niccolo, who was a professor, but also the owner of Studio 4. That was the reason I went to Temple University. And I went up to him after class and I said, dude, I just worked in this Frey stuff. Here's my resume. Let me work for you for free. Again, let me work for you for free. Let me intern for free. He said, just show up. And I showed up that day and never stopped showing up. And a couple years later, I bought half the studio. So, so I, whoa, that's a fast forward through a lot of years of me grinding through studios and working for nothing, working to just be in the room. That's the thing, man. I, want, I was going to invest in my future. I was going to invest in myself. I was going to invest in my chops. 
always tell kids now, especially young kids, I'm like, dude, don't expect to make a million dollars when you start working in the music industry, man. Do it because you love it. And I promise you, if you love it and you try your best and you have good taste, the, your career is going to come and the money will come. But yeah, that's what I did. I just worked for Phil at Studio 4 for free for a few years and before I made a dollar. And then and not that, I created my own situation in there. You know, he had me assist on sessions, but I started bringing in my own records. Hence, we'll go backwards. I brought in Blacklisted. That band that I demoed in my basement, I brought them in to demo at Studio 4. I paid for it. Right. I paid for the studio time because I wanted them in there and I wanted to have a business card that said blacklisted on it and an audio business card that people can hear and say, whoa, who is this guy? And because of that record and because of those demos, I got Title Fight to come in. I got so many of these bands that have become such influential bands coming because of that, really because of that record that kind of stemmed it all. And I paid for it. I remember paying $500 to book the studio time to bring in a band that I told them that it was free. It was actually, I paid for it. So it was just me believing in the product and me believing in my shops. You'll have to connect the dots for me between you're coming into Studio 4 and then buying them out. Walk me through that. Yeah, so what was crazy is Studio 4 was at that point downsizing. They used to own an entire building. It was 20,000 square feet. It was a massive building with a record label in the first floor, Rough House Records, who signed Fuji's, Lauren Hill, all those records. And the main A room was on the top floor and the bottom floor was mixed room and two other studios. They downsized and moved everything to the first floor and they sold the label. And I came in right at that point when they were constructing the new A room. So it was like half finished. He was still doing a few sessions, but there's barely a floor finished. But he had so much work that they kept working through it, but they didn't work that much and no one was using the studio at night. So I would bring in these sessions in the middle of the night and kick them back all the money, you know, so I was basically working for free and just having the, all my punk bands that we used to record in my house. No one's in the studio. So it's like, yo, just use it and pay me whatever. So I was just handing them a stack of twenties every night because no one's using the studio and that kept going. So I just slowly kept bringing more and more and more and more bands. And I took a storage room actually from him. There was a storage room that was just full of crap. It was maybe 90 square feet. It was so small. And I said, yo, can I give you like 700 bucks a month to use this as like a overdub room for me? I just wanted to be there. I wanted to be invested in Studio 4. He was like, yeah. So I used to rent the big room to record drums and did all my overdubs in this tiny, tiny little room. That's how I did the first turnover record I did. The Citizen Records, records that a lot of people listen to a lot now. The room was so small that we tracked in. And then I just kept doing it, kept renting the live room. I started using the live room more than Phil did because I just kept bringing in these bands. And you know, we just started making a lot of noise. And in 2013, I had a few offers to open up a studio together with some other partners. And they're like, yo, yo, Will, I feel like you're outgrowing your role at Studio 4. Instead of having to pay to use Studio 4, you just have your own studio. Would you want to partner up and do your own studio? I brought that up. I was very transparent, brought it up to Phil, my mentor at Studio 4. And he's like, dude, why don't you buy into Studio 4? Let's work something out. Why don't you take that money and invest it in here? I want you a part of Studio 4 forever. So I did it. You know, I got a really, really aggressive loan. A loan that I probably wouldn't take out now. Thinking back at that, I was 26 at that point. Man, it was a very aggressive loan. I had to make a lot of records and make a lot of money to pay, pay that loan every month. I actually don't even know how I did it. 
but I knew nothing was going to stop me. So I did it. And fast forward five years, I finished paying off the loan and I own half Studio 4. I own half that 8048 Neve console. They're one of the few left intact. It's been a wild ride, man. But it was really cool. I remember paying back the last payment that me and Phil, we had a drink together and we just celebrated and we couldn't believe where where I started to where we're at now. But yeah, that's how it happened. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> My God. It's a lot. I know it's a lot. I know I, I that you, like- it's really fascinating, Will, because you move yeah. so fast and you're so focused on what you're doing and your passion and your uh, enthusiasm is, is super infectious. Thank you. I'm getting that from you. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So let's talk about structuring your career because I want other people to hear this. I want to hear this. I want to hear how you're thinking and what your approach is to this whole thing. You don't have to tell me all your secrets, but give us an idea of what's happening here. Okay. I'll tell all my secrets. I'll give all my secrets. I think people need to hear it. And I just want to help. I think that's something not to go sideways a little bit, but I feel like in our world, you know, especially 10 years ago, why wasn't in the tech world? Why I didn't have too many producer friends and engineer friends? It was so competitive. I felt like everyone was so protective and protective of artists, protective of projects, protective of their money, which, you know, I understand should be. It's tough out there. But everyone was just so damn competitive. And it was like, maybe it was just the Philly scene, but it was just a lot of negative energy. It's almost like when you you saw another band or another producer succeed, you weren't happy for them. Your mind just went to, man, why couldn't that be me? Oh man, that's another record that I didn't do. Man, how, how can I do a record like that? You know what I mean? And it's like, that was just never my mentality. I felt that around me so much. And I feel like what, I want to do is enable the community and enable the community of all creatives, producers, artists, and just 
have people know that it's easier when everyone supports each other. You know, mm -hmm. the, the bands, the scenes that do really well are the one that takes each other out on tour. It's like, oh man, this band's so hot. Let's take them out. Let's fucking just put it all together and we'll get stronger together. And I feel like that is how community grows. And I didn't feel that growing up. So I want to fix that. I want to encourage people to reach out to me for help. I want to give away my secrets so that people have them and are as successful as they can be. I think what people don't, don't really realize is like someone's success or their amount of positive success doesn't mean you'll have less. You know what I mean? Doesn't mean there's less for you. There's so much music to go around. There's so many projects to go around. And what it actually means, if someone in your same world is successful, there's going to be more eyes to that world. And that person or that artist or that producer can't do it all. You're going to get work if you're a positive person and around that world, you're going to get the work. I remember when I started my record label ventures, my mentor at Roadrunner, Warner Brothers, Dave Rath, we tried signing this band. I was crushed that we didn't sign it. And I was so new to the, the record label side, I felt like I failed. I was like, wow, man, this band didn't sign with us. Shit, man, I was bummed. And I almost like had resentment towards the band a little bit, you know, just because we didn't sign it. Because I felt like mm -hmm. them turning us down was turning me down. It wasn't. I was just overreacting. But Dave Rath, my mentor, is like, dude, you know what you do? We root for that band. We want them to kill it. We want them to kill it and be the biggest band in the world. Because when that happens, there are going to be 5,000 versions of those bands and they're going to all come to you. And they're going to all, a bunch of them are all coming to you and reach out. I'm like, damn, that's why this dude's rich. Because <laughs> he sees a big picture. He's a big picture. He sees that if music is thriving, there's going to be work for everyone to help each other thrive. And so that's kind of like my business model. Not to get too cliche with it is... I want everyone around me to do well. I want to invest in artists. I want to invest in songs. I had this conversation with Josh Eastock, a friend, a lot that people, especially on the audio side, and a lot of people probably listen to this podcast, were so hyper-focused on our mix, on tones, on gear, which I am too. Don't get me wrong. I'm that big passion of mine. But what's paramount? are the songs. That's paramount to me. Mm. I invest in songs. Some of my favorite records growing up sound awful. <laughs> no disrespect. You know, I'm a big Albini fan. In Universe, some of my favorite records. You can't tell me that's a correct sounding record. Do you know what I mean? Like that record sounds crazy, but there's so much soul to it. And it just helped the songs to me. And so my goal has always been investment of the songs because that's what gives bands a career. That's what gives bands hook power, accessibility. And also as a producer, instead of just focusing on production and getting your engineering points, you're working into publishing territory too. So you have a revenue path that way too. So there's so many revenue paths, I think that are gate kept from young people. Mm -hmm. And I just want to open those doors. But in terms of me, man, I just want to invest in songs. I want to work on great songs because I know still to this day, if there's an artist that maybe can't afford to come to the studio with me, but I hear a demo, I'm like, yo, that song has the potential to be a banger. Let me invest in this. I'll do it for free. I'll do it for free. Let me invest in this. Let me be a part of it and help it grow and get people to hear the song because I believe in the song. That's my thing. I do what I believe in. I don't do it for the check is what I believe in. And not to side jump again, but another kind of tangent off that is I think producers and engineers on the audio side, you want to chase big records 
I don't. I do not. My goal is not to do the biggest records. I don't care about that. I care about working on the best songs. Mm. That's not exclusive to the big records. You know what I mean? I'm chasing big songs and I'm chasing prolific artists. And I think a lot of producers, when they come up and they come up, maybe they get popular because of this record or this record or these young bands records that they came up with, then they get used to these checks. They get used to whatever. When he's first started out, they get paid five G's for a record and then they get paid $15,000 for a record and they get paid $25,000 for a record. That becomes their standard. Like, I need $25,000 for a record. I need $30,000 for a record. I need 50K for a record. Honestly, I think that's when producer gets washed up. And that's when they get stale to me because those producers got popular because they taste made. They came up with someone. They created a thing with someone. And now, and instead of doing that again, they're just building off that and chasing these checks. I'm not saying that's for everyone, but I've seen that a lot of producers. And I see that's why people start forgetting their names after a generation or two. Your current generation might remember your name and might want to come to you. But if you're chasing, keep chasing big records, no one cares. A kid that's just started a band doesn't care who produced the Bon Jovi record. Even though the Bon Jovi record is a million dollar record, the people that are, are going to be your next taste making band are trying to do exactly that. Taste make, not chase who's producing this big record that doesn't touch them anymore. You know what I mean? Mm. So my goal was always people associate me with this band called Title Fight because we came up at the same time. We did records together and they really changed punk music for their time. Every band after Title Fight, every punk band after Title Fight for the initial you know, few years after wanted to follow Title Fight. They wanted to sound like Title Fight. So I got a lot of that work. The older I got, as I started doing bigger and bigger records, I'm like, man, fuck just chasing bigger records. I don't need more big records. I need more Title Fights. Not Title Fight in terms of what they sound like, but how Title Fight influence the scene, I need more of those records. I need to be a part of those movements and taste make more projects. Hence, I started a record label because even though I was doing bigger records, I knew I couldn't afford to do records for $3,000 anymore. So how am I going to be a part of this? Let me offer them a record contract as well. So I'm invested so that we're invested in it together, so that if I actually do believe it, which I do, and there's no other way or reason I would work for a band for literally losing money and where I can't even pay rent with the money, but I believe in so much, let me invest in it with you just signing a one record deal so that you can basically pay for the record time by letting me invest in the record. You know what I mean? So that was just one small idea on how how much importance I find in building new artists and not just chasing the big, bigger records, you know, which again, if the big records are great and the artists inspire me, I would love to do it. And I'm grateful to do those as well. But doing a band's eighth record or ninth record or 10th record, that's not what's sexy to me. I think what's sexy to me is kind of taste making and creating new sounds and, and new movements with bands and helping inspire the next wave of musicians, you know, and not just do the same thing. And that's what, even with bands that I'm lucky enough to do multiple records, like Serves of I, we just did our fifth record together. And our goal was to do everyone differently. We had a conversation, they're like, yo, Will, we love you, but in order for us to work together again, 
we have to do something different. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. That's why the new record that came out is very, very different because we kind of forced that. I never want to make the same record twice. How do we push ourselves and how do we not only push ourselves, but push our fans to grow with us? That creates a investment from the fans. You know, now that they grow, grow with us, they're invested in the movement of the band. And I think in terms of producers and engineers, I think more of them have to think in the terms of investment and in fan investment and in investment in the community and the scene. That's all I do. That's all I do. And that's all really I care about because that gives me a future. I know that that gives me legs to stand on. So you're talking about some very broad things here, and I kind of want to drill down into the mechanics of it just so I understand it. And that is when you say that you get invested in songs you're playing engineer, you're playing producer, right? Yep. And like, let's say I'm a band and I come to you and I say, well, I've got a great song here. You agree. What is it I need to provide you? What role do you need to play here financially? I mean, not specifically financially, but like, do you take part of the publishing and how does that all work? Yep. I'm the fairest person. And I think my managing artists usually give me more than what I ask for on things because I am very fair. My goal when I go into any record, rather it's just working on a song or a whole record, is I hate the tag of just producer or engineer or songwriter or drummer or guitar player. I'm just going to be a member of the process. And my goal is to help make the songs better and as best as they can be, whatever that means whatever that means. If I think the song, the demo came in perfect, I thought every part was written perfectly. It's, it's, it's every melody sings perfectly. Every lyric is perfect. Every guitar riff's perfect. Every beat, perfect. I'm probably just going to engineer it and get great takes, get very inspiring takes. And, you know, probably just get engineering points or production points. If I get a song and I think, oh man, that verse is awesome. That chorus melody is just not touching me. And I know if it's not touching me, it might not touch other people too. Can we fix this? I want everyone in the room, including myself, to love every second and every melody of every song. I do my homework with songs. I'm not just an engineer pushing buttons. I tell bands, if they want that, if they want people to not touch their songs, I'm not the guy for you. <laughs> you know. So, But I want everyone to be stoked with every line of the song and every melody of song. So I'm always presenting an idea. So here's an idea. Yo, yo, what about this? What about the change melody to this? And they're like, oh, well, that actually is better. But what if we change that to this? It's all a collaborative process. And I want to do enough. I don't want to overdo it. So right. if it feels good, if, if it feels good, it feels good. But if it doesn't, we're going to fix it. Whatever needs to be done, we do. Let me ask you this. Do you have a manager? I do. Okay. I do have a manager. At what point did a manager come into your life? What was the point at which your career took a turn? And how did that, how did that relationship get formed in a nutshell? It was 2012. And my entire calendar was booked. Like I had records booked and I was booking it myself. It was the first time where my entire calendar was booked with records and not just like, oh, this week I'm doing this session. This, you know, it was in November, I'm working with Turnover. In December, I'm working with Super Heaven. I'm, you know, and I had all these records booked and I actually had lunch with one of the managers of one of the bands. And she was so honest with me. She's like, Will, you're doing my band's record for way too cheap. You're doing it for way too cheap. You're too good. You're too hot right now. Everybody wants to work with you in this small scene. 
and you should be making twice as much, at least. We, we got your first deal. And I'm like, I mean, it kind of stings to hear, but I just want to be a part of it. I'm grateful. At that point, I was grateful for anything that I did. And she's like, you have to take more value in your time and in, in your craft. And she wanted, wanted to be a manager. And I, I went to explore the options. We we're still really good friends, you know, me, me and that person. But I went with someone else who I knew for, for a long time, one of my friends growing up and who had managed bands that he's never managed producers before. He's like, dude, I think this would be fun. And there's something about how we connected. He was like, I just want to help you. We're going to get you where you deserve. We're not going to rob people. I was like, I don't want to rob people. I come from a very punk background. I want to be fair to bands. He was like, no, we're going to get you what you're worth. And we're going to build this together. We're both learning as we went. We're like, we're not sure what this means, but we know that we want to help me grow. And it was hot at that point. I just booked my first Circus of Vibe record myself. I booked my second title fight record. And I knew the circuit record was going to do big things for me. There's going to be a lot of record labels knocking on your door. And probably if you don't have a manager or, or if you don't have the knowledge of contracts, production agreements, of points, you're going to be taken advantage of. He was very real. I'm like, yeah, you're, you're probably right. Because I say yes to everything. And he really helped me. And he didn't take a dime for years. He just wanted to help it invest in it. And you know, he's, he's like the only person that when I pay, I feel really good paying him <laughs> now because <laughs> we built this thing together, but he helped me with my production agreements, with getting me points when I deserve it, get me publishing when I deserve it. He's very transparent and it just helped get me my worth, man. You know, it helped take care of me when I don't think anybody else had my back in that, in that sense. But yeah, it was 2012. And every year he did the math. I don't pay attention to stuff. It's like every year, look at how much more you're making per record. It wasn't just him, but it was us growing this thing together and growing the business together. So I'm really, really grateful for him. And I couldn't have done it without him. I'll probably be probably step backwards or at least a little behind, especially financially without him. I can feel it. And I know that the audience listening can feel it. The amount of energy coming from you is immense. And so I have to ask, how are you managing the work-life balance? How does Ooh. this affect relationships in your world? I don't know if you're married or, or, or yeah. a significant just other. Got okay, just got married. So talk to me about that. How are you managing to keep the other people in your personal life Ooh. happy? That's tough, man. That's tough. I'm friends with a lot of chefs. I'm really obsessed or I have a passion for food as well and the culinary world. And I was actually talking to one of my favorite chefs uh, yesterday, we were hanging out. We were asking each other the same thing because his hours were crazier than mine. He's the head chef running one of the most successful restaurants in the fifth largest city in America. So he's working, he's showing up at 9.30 and he's leaving at 1 a.m. most days. And, you know, we're talking, we're like, yo, how do you do? I was like, yeah, my hours are pretty crazy too, especially when I was touring. You know, I was touring with Lauren Hill for a few years when we started working together in studio. And not even that, when I came home, when I wasn't touring, I was in the studio. Our days were usually 11 to 11. And I came home and I edited and I mixed through the night. And I'm so grateful for my partner and my wife. This entire process of me buying Studio 4, she was there for all of it. She was there when I was making a thousand dollars a record, when I was making nothing for a record, and when I, I had to sell gear to make rent. She was the breadwinner in our apartment hold, you know, when we had an apartment together and she had my back, man. She really had my back and she believed in what I did. And she knew that my passion was going to get me somewhere successful. 
but you have to keep communication clear. For me, for me personally, you have to draw lines. So at that point, that was probably the most extreme when I was working 12 hour days and still editing for another six hours. It would be, all right, but for that, I promise you for that one hour, we're having dinner together and I'm going to be present for that one hour. I'm turning off my phone and we're going to hang out for that one hour. That was way back when we were young. But even at that point, it gave us hard lines. And just like now, I finally, for the first time in my career, we're taking Saturdays and Sundays off. First time in my career ever. I never did that. Maybe four years ago, we started taking just Saturdays off. But before I was working seven days a week. But for me, you're never going to be able to balance 50-50 in terms of working music and your household. But it was always finding and committing to time. It's setting a routine. If you can set that routine and they're okay with that expectation, with the understanding that that will change and will grow, those hours, my days start getting a little shorter because I knew it wasn't sustainable. So that, yeah, I started doing 10 to 8. And at 8 o'clock, we have dinner, and then we hang out and catch up for a few hours before me have to do a couple of edits, and she goes to bed. I see a lot of engineers do this, where every day is different. Every day is like, oh, dude, I'm working from 10 to 6 today. Oh, tomorrow I'm working from 9 to 2 a.m. I'm like, yo, even if you're working fewer hours than me, that's crazier than me. Because how do people know when it's cool to hang out with you or know when it's cool to reach out to you? I like a routine. So even though it's maybe longer stretch of time, you know when you can get me and you know when I'm present. And just like now, Saturdays and Sundays, that's when I'm home. That's when I dedicate to my mental health, my partner, our household. It straight up only works when you need a very understanding partner. And I'm very grateful I have one. Not that she, you know, we had many arguments about time and wanting more. And I made promises that this was going to change. I was going to make more money and I can work less. And it started happening. It started happening. You know, I remember dumping all the money into gear and dumping all the money into the studio. She's like, we're never going to buy a house. How are we ever going to buy a house? And I was like, I promise you, just like I promised my parents, I'm going to kill this and I'm going to get us a house. And then 2017, we got us a house. <laughs> so uh. I have goals and I'm very grateful that she was very understanding my goals, but it was strong lines and not crossing them too much. Mm and sticking by them. The routine helps me. And I think every band can tell you, I show up to the studio at the same time every day. I eat the same thing for lunch every day. And I leave the same time usually every day. But- What do you eat for lunch every day? Okay, yeah, I'm a big foodie, but my lunch isn't that great. I've learned to eat something very light just to keep me going. I can't be weighed down because to me, I have to be on, I have to be present. I have to be aware of everything in the room the entire session because I feel responsible for that. So I just eat a spring salad with avocado and egg, oil and vinegar every single day. That's all I eat. That's all wow. I eat. And then I finish the session at 8.30 and me and my partner, we have whatever we want for dinner. It could be anything we want. I'm so glad you didn't say microwave burritos every day. No, no, no. <laughs> See, that's the thing too. You got to take care of your body. I learned that. I learned the hard way. I'm having leg and carpal tunnel issues. I just had carpal tunnel surgery from not taking care of my body, thinking in your 20s that you're invincible and you can sit all day. You can use the mouse all day. You literally can't. Not the hours that I did. People say they work all day. I was working all day, every single day, no days off. And that took a wear on my body, you know, having really bad sciatica issues that I've invested probably $30,000 into from physical therapy to procedures and crazy carpal issues. I want to eventually do some type of awareness for like, 
you know, they don't teach you this in school. They don't teach you ergonomics in production class, you know, in terms of your actual body. And I feel like a lot of people are messing up their wrists and messing up their posture and their spine, their backs, because they're slaving over a console or slaving Mm. over a computer all day. Yeah, I, I feel like that really held me back the last few years. I'm still living through it, but yeah, man, you got to take care of your body and you got, you got to eat well in order for you to do this every day. I literally do the shit every day and I do the same thing. I'm booked. You know, we're already booked eight months ahead of time right now. I have to keep my body in shape to be, be able to do it. The other thing that we're not taught very much in school and as audio professionals, they really don't teach this uh, very much. This is a conversation I've been having quite a bit with people is financial literacy Yeah, I know we all kind of go through our ebbs and flows and we make our mistakes. I've made my share of them. What is your overall financial philosophy now based on mistakes, based on goals? That's a good question. I always try not to live beyond my means and be realistic and always kind of underspend or underestimate how much that's coming in and be smart and recognize my arcs through the years and the growth of records, right? And literally take the bottom average number and think if I made this much in 18, 19, 20, I'm probably gonna make maybe a little more, but let's just say I'm I'm gonna make what I made in 20. That's how I look at it because records are always gonna come going again, especially if I take smaller records that I wanna invest in the band, I'm gonna make less money and I probably won't see a dime on royalties on that if I see royalties that for years, right? But just say I made X amount in 18, in 19, I'm planning out that's how much I make in 19. Luckily, every year it's been growing. So I think I made this person 19, this is how much I'm budgeting that I'm making in 20. So even though my career has been growing, it's all kind of bonuses, right? I think artists and producers both have a lot of information gate kept from them, especially on the accounting side. And there's no one helping you watch your back until you hire people to watch your back. But taking care of your money, putting money aside, putting money aside definitely helped me, especially on the tax side. Most people doing this are their own sole proprietors or a 1099 worker. And you got to take care of your money. And for me, it's always budgeting appropriately or else you're not going to have anything left by the end of the year. So, so, you know, a lot of artists, when you see a big advanced check coming for a production, they're like, oh man, this is awesome. Let's go buy this. No, no, no. Put it away and budget it accordingly and you'll be fine. So you pay yourself out this sum to say, this is my spending limit for the month, like a salary. Mm-hmm. And then what you have left over, that's your bonus. So if you have some type of structure, I think you'll be a lot healthier instead of spending as you go. I know every producer I know, when they get a big check, oh man, dude, that guitar, that custom Fender or that <laughs> Neve 33609 that I was looking at, man, yeah, I'm, I'm going to spend on that. I was like, dude, hold off on it for a quarter, hold off on it for, for a bit, let that accumulate and take care of it. Invest. I've just been trying to be smart with my money and just really try to treat it like a job. Find they have the most financially stable RSI workers, they pay themselves out salary. So they have this big chunk of money. So they know that it's there. So they know that they're protected. I want all my artists and producer friends to feel safe and to feel like they're not always having to wash their back and wait for the next check. So anything that can set you up so that you feel like you have a salary, you're kind of just living in a rhythm and you have a structure and a system of things. My thing is just trying to get as structured as possible. And it's been a work in progress, but I'm pretty proud of the strides that we made. 
we're about out of time, Will, but where people can learn more about you, I would assume, is at willyip.com. Yep. You get very superficial information about me there. So it's, I'm grateful to be able to have a conversation like this. I feel like this is where I get to express and, and talk. Well, I'm, I'm going to include a link in the show notes to your website, but this conversation, man, you, you really just have inspired me here. Your, your enthusiasm and I don't know, man, you're just, you're on fire <laughs> in a good, in a good way. Thanks, man. And uh, I'm excited for you and I'm excited for the audience because they get to hear this conversation. I'm happy for me because I got to partake in this conversation with you. I look forward to an in-person meeting at some point in the future. We'll run into each other and I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I can't wait for that, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Will. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Will Yip. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, we are on social media. You can find us over at Instagram, Working Class Audio with underscores between all the words. Yeah, check it out there. And if you have a guest suggestion, head on over to workingclassaudio.com. You can find the guest suggestion form there. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical Mr. Chuck Smith there with his voice at the beginning of the show. Remember, connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>